Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible class at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We welcome those who are also listening on KFUO radio. As we prepare to hear God's word this morning, I invite you to open your hearts and join your voices in praying with me. We thank you, Heavenly Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you safely brought us through the night, brought us to this day, and for the opportunity to come together as your people around your holy word. We pray that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your spirit at work in the word today. Help us to not only understand it, but also to apply it to our lives so that we might live in a manner which is truly pleasing to you. So bless our study today and make us wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus our Savior. Amen. The lessons that we're looking at today are actually the lessons for next Sunday, September 22nd. They're included in what's called Proper 20. Today the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson are uniquely tied together. And so with your permission, I'm going to look at the Old Testament lesson, then go to the Gospel, and then, if there's time, go back and pick up the Epistle lesson, which continues an, an ongoing reading from 1 Timothy, whereas the Old Testament and the Gospel carry the same theme. And so we begin with Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 7, and maybe just a little bit of background about Amos. Amos was one of the minor prophets. We call them minor prophets not because they were less important but because their message uh, was much briefer than the major prophets. The major prophets included Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then the, the rest of the Old Testament books were combined into one reading that, which was called the Book of the Twelve. And there were twelve of these minor prophets who had very brief messages. Amos was uh, prophesying around 750 B.C. He was a shepherd and a dresser of sycamore, sycamore trees, according to uh, chapter 7, verse 14, which means that he was a layman. A layman who was called by God to be a prophet, and as such, he brought God's word to God's people. He's from the town of Tekoa which is in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he prophesies to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so he was an outsider. You might say he was an agitator. That what he's talking about here was really none of his business as he prophesied against Israel. Therefore, he shouldn't be involved. Just butt out, buddy. This is none of your business. That's the reaction that he received. His name means the burden bearer, but I suspect that the people of Israel saw him more like a pain in the neck. He wasn't very tactful. He could be very crude in the way he described things. For example, he talks about some of the women as the cows of Bashan. I don't suppose he was very popular among the women when he called them a bunch of cows. He was really attacking all of the rich and all of the famous, which 
wouldn't have made him very popular either. He was kind of a sneaky homiletical style, and the profs at the seminary would, would really pick up on the way that he prophesied. If you look at the first couple chapters, he begins with a series of these sermons saying, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, Damascus was the capital of Syria. And you can imagine the Israelites hearing this word and saying, that's exactly right. You tell those Syrians, they need to hear this message. This isn't about us, it's about them, and you're right on. They deserve God's punishment. So he kind of put the hooks into them and started drawing them in. Then he said, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And they're all nodding in agreement. And then he went through uh, Tyre and Edom and the Ammonites and Moab, all of their enemies. And he's just ripping into them, talking about all of their sins. They're all nodding in agreement. And then he says, for three transgressions of Judah, the southern kingdom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now they were saying, oh, we got him. You know, there was this this break between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And those in the southern kingdom claimed Mount Zion and, and uh, the temple as their own. And, and now Amos is giving it to them. And they got it coming. We're up here in, in Samaria and, uh, you know, they think they're better than we are. Well, Amos, you give it to them and you give it to them good. But then he says, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And all of a sudden, Amos is meddling. What gives you the right to come up here and talk to us like that? But he's sticking the word of God, the word of law to them, pointing out their failures, their sins, and they didn't like hearing it. What he's really talking about in... in Almost the entire book is, is what we would call their social sins, their injustice, their usury, the way they were charging exorbitant prices, their, their business practices, their drunkenness, their immorality. But it goes deeper than that. It's, it's talking to the people who just refuse to get involved. They wanted to sit in the sidelines. They recognized that some of the things were going on weren't but but they weren't going to say anything. They weren't going to do anything about it. They were somehow able to ignore the plight of the poor and the needy. And that in the eyes of God was an abomination. But it wasn't just ignoring the plight of the poor and needy. They were deliberately taking actions to abuse the poor, to take advantage of the poor and the needy. And God was upset with what was going on in Israel. So Amos comes and he, he lays this all on him and he understands what's going on among the rich and the famous. He understands what's going on among the merchants because he's one of them. So he can lay it on and speak with authority on the things that he talks about. And so we begin in Amos 4, or 8, verse 4. 
Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff for the, of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Hear this, you who trample on the poor and the needy. That refrain is repeated over and over again in the book of Amos. Amos understood. He understood how business was going on and he understood God's will and he's bringing the two together to say it isn't right. So these, these rich people, the, the merchants, are saying to one another, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? The Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, deceit, deal deceitfully with false balances? New moons and Sabbaths were religious holidays. The markets were closed. And apparently the, the people of Israel, the merchants, were all saying, we'll shut down, we'll, this is important to us, we will worship on the Sabbath day, we will observe the law strictly. But all the while in their minds they were thinking, how are we going to make some money out of this? How are we going to take advantage of the poor? Instead of really focusing on worship and being in the presence of God, their hearts, their minds were still on their money. In those days, wheat was the staple of the common people. It was the wealthy who ate the meat, but bread was the food of the common man. And so the, the first thing they think about when they're doing business is, how are we going to adjust the markets so that we can sell wheat and make a bigger profit out of this? Well, what they decided to do was make the ephah, which was about a half a bushel of grain, very small, and the shekel, the weights that were used on the scales to be overly large. And so what they were doing was making the ephah small, the shekel great, we would call it price gouging. They were cheating. They were being dishonest. And they were taking advantage of the poor people. That's why the Lord is upset with them. Going a little further, they were saying to themselves in these times when they should have been worshiping, we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff off the wheat. In hard times, a Jewish man might sell himself or sell his family into slavery in order to pay off the debts that he had racked up. And sometimes the, the wealthy would work it in such a way that that the price of a slave was slow, so, slow, so low, it was about the same as, as the cost of a pair of sandals. They were dealing in what we would call human trafficking, 
and in slavery. This was an abomination to the Lord their God. Then the merchants would sweep, sweep up the chaff, which sounds like a good idea when the business day is over. You gather up all the chaff that is blown off the grain and you throw it away. But that's not what they were doing. They were mixing it back in with the good grain. And so once again, they were taking advantage, selling inferior products at a high price. And so it says, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. This unrighteous treatment of the poor was a, a symptom of, of their impenitence, their, their unwillingness to truly obey the covenant which God had made with them. If you read through all of Scripture, you see that God had a very special place in his heart for the poor and the needy. There was a group of rabbis who taught that God surely must have loved the poor and the needy because he made so many of them. But that wasn't God's will. If you read any of Scripture, it's always about taking care of the poor and needy. For example, in, in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy 15, listen to what the Lord says. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. Somehow the merchants, the rich and the famous in Israel, had forgotten this command of God. They were taking advantage of the poor and the needy. And the Lord was angry. Have I sunk the hooks in deep enough to you yet today? God... Give it to those Israelites. They had it coming. The way they were treating the poor and the needy. The way they were ignoring them. The way they were taking advantage of them. And we're all sitting back saying, Amen. God is angry with unfair business practices. And focusing on all the money. And ignoring the poor and the needy. And now for the three transgressions of the United States of America and for four, I will not revoke my punishment. God is saying, what are you folks doing about the poor and the needy in your community? Can you ignore their plight? Oh, we sit back and we think, well, that's, that's the government's job, isn't it? That's what we have welfare for, to take care of the poor and the needy on our behalf. 
how do you feel when you walk down the sidewalk to the ball game and there is a young woman sitting there with a handmade sign begging for money and you got your brand new cardinal jersey and your fifty dollar ball ticket in your hand and she's begging for a little bit of what you've got how do you feel when you pull up to an intersection in in our fancy cars and there stands one by the side of the road saying we'll work for money and our first reaction is yeah he's not willing to work well he just wants a handout if he was willing to work we'd hire him and we'd, we'd take care of him but he's not willing to work in our way of thinking we always look down on the poor and the needy in our own midst we ignore their plight or we cast it on somebody else. When the Lord says in his covenant in Deuteronomy, if your neighbor is hungry, if your neighbor is needy, you open your hands and you don't do it grudgingly. But you give, you help, you lend in any way you can. It's a heavy duty message about stewardship. And this is going to be the connection with today's, next week's gospel reading about stewardship and how we manage the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. Is it just for our benefit? Or are we to use these blessings to help others, especially the poor and the needy in our midst? Amos lays a heavy message on the United States of America today and upon each and every one of us. You got any thoughts about Amos? Because we're going to take up a little bit more about stewardship. The gospel for next Sunday is from Luke 16, verses 1 through 15. I got to tell you a background story here. I was studying, studying this lesson on September 11th. And I remember that I preached on this text on a Monday, September the 10th, 2001. We had a district pastor's conference, and the topic of the conference was stewardship. And so the opening service of the pastor's conference was was to set the stage for what was to follow in the days to come. And so I preached on, on this lesson from Luke and talked about stewardship and what stewardship really is. Whenever you hear the word stewardship, automatically you start thinking about money. But stewardship is really the management of all of life and all of life's resources for God's saving purposes. It's not what you put in the offering plate as much as it is what you do with the rest of your life and all the gifts that God has given you. It's the management of it all. So I, I preached the sermon. And the speaker began that morning talking about stewardship and applying it to pastors and helping pastors learn to apply the word stewardship to their people. And the next morning we got up and turned on the TVs 
And we saw the planes flying into the buildings. The topic of stewardship came to an end immediately. Now all of the pastors knew that they had to go back to their hometowns. They had to get there quickly because there were going to be a lot of questions there were going to be a lot of people who were hurting. And how do we as the people of God respond to a crisis, a national crisis like this? And there was so much uncertainty about what was really going on in the world around us. And was this the beginning of something even bigger? And so the topic of stewardship was set to the side. And we spent about an hour, hour and a half maybe, with the pastors talking about scripture lessons that they were going to be using in the days to come. The hymns that made an impact. We were offering prayers for the people of New York City and the prayers of the world and the prayers of our own congregations and the people in our communities. And so each pastor would get up and talk about how he was going to impact this and how he was preparing himself to go back and meet his people that afternoon and, and that evening. And we ended and sent everybody on their way. And my first reaction was, well, that certainly shot the stewardship topic. And then I started thinking more deeply about that. Isn't that what stewardship really is? The management of all of life in a time of crisis like that and in the good times. Managing life and all of life's resources to help people in times of need to proclaim the gospel all about God's saving purposes. And so I, I bring this um, with a lot of memories to you today as we talk about what stewardship really, really is. Now, this comes from Luke 16. Jesus started introducing the subject of money in Luke 15. We heard one of the parables this morning, the parable of a, a lady who had ten important coins, ten drachma, the family inheritance, and one of them was lost. And so she lit the lamp and swept the house, which was a terrible waste if you think about it. Lighting a lamp, sweeping the house was a lot of energy, a lot of cost for the oil in the lamp. But that coin was so important to her, she'd give up anything. And she searched until she found her lost coin. And when she found it, she went to an even greater expense, inviting all of her friends to come together with her and to rejoice because she lost her, her lost or found her lost coin. The story that comes immediately after that is about a lost boy who took his inheritance half of the money his father had and spent it on wild living. And when it was all gone and he had nothing left to depend on, he remembered life at his father's house and, and he went home. And once again we see a father in his love who runs out, lifts his skirt, runs out to meet his son, throws his arms around him, instructs the servants to, to bring the ring and the robe and the sandals and to kill a fatted calf, a lot of expense there. And it was all because his lost son, who had wasted his inheritance, who had wasted his money, was now found in home where he belonged. 
And once again, we get an image of money and money management and, and stewardship and, and, and understanding what's really important to us. In chapter 16, he continues to deal with this subject of money management. There are two more parables about rich men. The parable that we're going to look at today is, is about a rich man who had a dishonest servant. And how that dishonest servant managed money. And how shrewd he was in dealing. And Jesus uses that to teach us lessons about mammon. And the second story, which follows the next week, is about a rich man who lived a life of luxury and didn't notice the poor beggars at his gate. And in time, both he and the beggar died. And the rich man found himself in hell while the poor man was at Abraham's side. And that's a whole another topic for next week. But today we look at this first parable about the unjust steward. So in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 7, he also said to his disciples, now it's important that the audience here is really the disciples, and so he's teaching them about life in the kingdom, things that are important. And remember, this comes immediately after the parable of the prodigal son. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Kind of a shrewd man, as, as we'll see here. This manager was getting audited. And nobody likes an auditor looking over their shoulders, second-guessing how they've been managing. But this man was dishonest, and he knew he was dishonest, and he knew that he was going to lose his job. So he took steps to ensure his future. He said, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. What am I going to do? What does my future have in store? How can I take... The possessions that I have now, the position that I have now, and use that in some way, leverage that is the word we often use, in order to secure my future. Ah, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too proud to beg. I know what I'm going to do. I got a plan. And so he began calling in all of the creditors. It was likely they were all sharecroppers. 
You know how it works, and a, a contract is arranged. The man owns the land. Sharecroppers come on and work the land. They get a portion of the crop, and he gets a portion of the crop. Common business practice even today. Well, he calls in the first one and says, what do you owe my master? Well, 100 measures of oil. I'll cut you a deal. Write out 50, and we'll call it good enough. Well, who wouldn't accept that deal? Called in the second, what do you owe? 100 measures of wheat. <laughs> Write out 80. I'll give you a 20% discount here, and we'll call it good enough. Now, what would be the result of a situation like that? When he got fired, he'd have friends. Friends who would either welcome him into their home and take care of him. Maybe they'd offer him a job. Either way, his future would be secure. So what's Jesus saying here? Is, is he saying dishonesty is going to pay off? Go out and be sneaky and take advantage of people and make friends with this dishonest money that you got? He doesn't commend the man for his dishonesty. He commends him for his shrewdness. Verses 8 and 9. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into their dwellings. The sons of this world, the non-spiritual people, are shrewder than the sons of the light. Note the contrast, the difference between believers and unbelievers. But remember also that Jesus is talking to his disciples. So he's really talking to believers, saying, we're not quite as sharp in how we handle money as those people out in the world are, and maybe we need to sharpen our skills. Note the, the contrast here. It, it goes on. It, it's not just the sons of the world and the sons of the light, but goes on to talk about true riches and mammon, which is unrighteous gain, and back and forth, Jesus is talking about what is it that's really important. Notice he also says, make friends, so that when it fails, you need to know that, that there's a variant reading here, the King James Version says, when you fail, and what's the difference here? When the money runs out like it did for the prodigal son, when it fails, you better have some friends. Or is it when you fail, you better have some friends. There's a, a commercial on TV, and, and it's, it's for a car warranty company. And they make the case that that if you buy their insurance, their warranty program, your car is going to be taken care of whenever there's a major repair that's needed. And this guy always drives me crazy. There's one part, he says, you know, I've had this, this policy and I know that, that when there's a problem, and there will be, 
You'll be covered. Kind of the same thing Jesus is saying here. When the money fails, it will. When you fail, and you will, you better have some friends. You better be shrewd. And so the point is that that we as the children of the light need to use our money wisely in order to ensure our future. So the question is, what does it mean to use our money wisely in order to secure our future? And if you go back to Amos, if you go back to Deuteronomy, if you go back to the words of Jesus in chapters 11 and 12, the way in which you use money wisely is helping the poor and the needy. And in Jesus' terms, it's giving alms. Once again, he's focusing our attention on what is pleasing to God, and that is taking care of the poor. Verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you've been unfaithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so the application here is faithfulness. Faithfulness in the management of all of your life. Have you ever heard the derivation of the word steward or stewardship? It goes back to Old English. In Old English time, the the kings, the nobles, always had wardens. Wardens who were responsible for a portion of their property or their possessions. For example, we, we think of a game warden today. A game warden is the one who's responsible for the king's animals out in the field, his, his forests and his glens, and, and taking care of managing all of that life out there. They had lots of wardens for different parts of, of their empire, but one of the, the lowliest, the dirtiest warden of all was the guy who took care of the pigs, and he was a sty warden. And so, in time, kings began to understand that those who were being faithful in a little bit could be trusted with a great deal. In time, the sty wards became the the most trusted of all the wardens and became, in a sense, the, the king's or the noble's treasurer. And they took care of all of the king's possessions. And in time, the sty wardens, the stewards, rose in even more power because of their faithfulness. And they started to be known as the stewards. And the royalty of of England in time became the stewards, the steward family from which many of the kings of England descended. 
It's a clear teaching, a, a, a clear illustration of what Jesus is teaching here. If you can be faithful in the lowliest, in the little bit, then, then you will be raised. There, there's more. You'll be trusted with greater things. And the greater things here isn't more and more money necessarily, but as Jesus is talking about it, he's talking about true riches. If you can be faithful in the management of money, if you can be faithful in the management of your life, you'll be faithful in the management of all of God's riches that he entrusts to you. The point of all of this is to say that the steward is never the owner. The steward is only a manager. The steward is held accountable to the, the noble or the king or the master. He's a lowly servant who takes care of what belongs to somebody else. If, if we think of ourselves as stewards, and we recognize that God is the owner of all things. And he has entrusted to us a little bit. Some of us more than others, but a little bit. And he, man, he wants us to manage whatever that is for his saving purposes. It takes the focus off of money, in a sense. And it takes, uh, puts the emphasis where it really belongs on all of your life. How are you doing as a steward of all that God has entrusted to you? He wants you to be shrewd, but the real word here is faithful. Faithful. Whether you have a little or a lot, be faithful. He goes down to say, Let, let's, let's get our priorities straight. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't have two masters. And that's, that's the where, where I think a lot of us try to live our lives, in this tension between are we serving God or are we serving mammon? And we're going to have... Undivided, we're going to have divided loyalty if we try to do that. But if we're thinking correctly and we put God first, if God is our true master, then we'll faithfully manage and see wealth and possessions for what they really are. And so Jesus makes this contrast in the session again. It's, it's between very little and much, unrighteous wealth, and true riches, property owned by a manager, and that which is your own. So God is the owner, we're the managers, we're called to be stewards, and faithfully manage what belongs to God. Go to verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening in on this conversation. Remember, it was all aimed at the disciples. What does it mean to be a believer and how we handle uh, what God entrusts to us? 
But now the, the Pharisees were listening in on all of this, and Luke makes the point, they're lovers of money. They heard all these things and began to ridicule Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees began to ridicule Jesus because they saw wealth as a sign of God's blessing. They saw wealth as a sign that God approved of the things that they were doing. They saw God as a, uh, they saw wealth as a sign that what they were teaching was really the truth from God. Today we would call this a, a theology of glory or a prosperity gospel. If you want God to bless you, the evangelists on TV say, you send in your seed money, a thousand dollars, and you'd be amazed at what God will do for you. It lines the pockets of the evangelists, but Jesus is saying, that's an abomination in the eyes of God. It's not, being wealthy is not pr proof that God approves of what you do. It, it's not allowing us to be self-righteous because we're wealthy, because we've been richly blessed more than all the people in the world today. It, it's, it's not to be used for our own selfish purposes and think that God approves of all of that, but it's to be used for the sake of others. And so what Jesus is saying in this last section is that, that riches are really just outward glitter. They're worth nothing in the eyes of God. They're an abomination. But what God is really concerned about is what is it that brings God glory? How we, we manage is intended for God's saving purposes. It's intended to show the world what we believe about God and give him all the glory. He's the owner. We're the managers. We're just stewards of all of life. Any thoughts? We've, I've laid a lot on you today. Um, thoughts so far on these two lessons and how they fit together and what true stewardship is? I understand. No, I think, I'm pretty sure that Pastor Thomas is, Thompson is going to be preaching on that point next week. Um, look forward to hearing what he has to say. But let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, the epistle. Got about 15 minutes. I'm not sure how far we're going to get. But remember that, that Paul is writing to this young pastor, Timothy, helping him to understand what it means to be a good pastor, helping him to understand um, the kinds of pastors he's supposed to be raising up to, to lead God's people, and the things that faithful pastors are supposed to be doing for their people. And so Paul talks about worship and 
we'll see the role of women and how we conduct ourselves uh, in public. He, he lays this all out for Timothy and says, now, as, as you teach the people of Ephesus, you help them to understand these things as well. So we begin with one of the most important topics of all, and that's the topic of prayer. In verses 1 through 7, for starters, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a, quiet, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. First of all, of primary importance, Timothy, if you're going to be a faithful pastor, teach your people how to pray. And so he says, I urge. And he's, he's not... And there are some groups who want to say, this is kind of a personal section where Paul sets aside Holy Scripture and he just gives his own opinion. Now at the end of this section, remember, he said, I was appointed an apostle. I'm a preacher. I was given this word by God. It's not just me urging this on you, but I urge on God's behalf, this is the word of God, I urge that people be taught to pray. Pray. And he uses four different words here. They're all what we might call synonyms, uh, but there's slight nuances. First of all, the supplications, those are requests for specific things that we need. Prayers, that's kind of a general prayer showing reverence and devotion. Intercessions, prayers for others offered in childlike faith. Thanksgiving. Expressions of gratitude. We understand what it means to say thank you to God, but so often we forget. I urge that prayers, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He's talking primarily about the public worship service here. But I think we, we need to take this and say, what is, what is God saying to us about our prayer life? If there's, there's one thing that, that seems to stand out among most of the Christians that I talk to, they're unhappy with their prayer life. They know they don't pray the way they're supposed to pray. They get busy, they forget, they fall asleep before it happens, they gobble down their food before they say grace. We all have a dissatisfaction with our prayer life. And it's said that Martin Luther prayed two hours every day. And in our busy schedule, we say, where in the heck did he find two hours a day to pray? But his comment was, if it was going to be a particularly busy day, 
I'll spend three hours in prayer. He knew that he needed this conversation with God. I think so often we have a a misunderstanding of, of what prayer really is. How we pray, position that we pray, where our hands are, directions that we look, down or up or hands out, hands together. Um, But prayer is is really an ongoing conversation with God. God speaks to us in his word. We all all say that. This is where we know God is speaking to us. So we listen to him in prayer. And then... We respond, talking back to God about the things that he's spoken to us about. And God speaks back to us in his word, and we reply. And God speaks to us in his word, and we reply. And so in a sense, if, if we're into God's word, I don't know how we can possibly not be praying. The opposite is also true. When we're out of God's word, what happens to our prayer life? If we're not listening to God, we got nothing to say back to him. So our prayer life and our study of God's word go hand in hand. One and, 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 and both the same. St. Saint, Saint Paul here is not so concerned about how we pray as much as who we're praying for. And so he, prays, he says, I urge that... Prayers for all people, for everyone, for unbelievers, for enemies, for kings, and all in high positions. And remember, he he was praying for Nero, who was persecuting the church. But even Nero was God's servant, according to Romans 13, for the good of mankind. And so St. Paul urges that prayers be prayed for even the kings who were persecuting them. Yesterday I was trying to merge onto Highway 40. And this guy sitting next to me was not going to let me in. Traffic was backed up for miles, and he was not going to give me a break. Even though I wasn't trying to get way down the, the entrance, I was just trying to get on. And so he kept creeping up next to me. And finally, I looked over, and I, I know he didn't hear me, but it was my own. What's the matter with you? Can't you give a guy a break? And, of course, he gave me the usual one-finger gesture. And I, at that moment, I was angry, and I thought, maybe I ought to just show him the sign of the cross, which probably would have been a better response than the one I actually gave him. But... In a moment like that, can we pray for that jug-headed guy who won't allow us to merge into traffic? Can we pray for the, the Muslims who attacked our building on, on September 11? Can, can we pray for our political enemies in a time like this when our country is so badly divided? And people are constantly taking shots at one another. Isn't it time that instead of turning up the political rhetoric, we turn up the prayers for all of those who are running for office? 
That's what Paul is getting at here. Let, let's, let's amp up our prayers. Because this is good and it pleases God and God's will is that, that all people be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if we're really praying for those people, if, if that's what God's will is, and we know that's what God's will is, then we ought to be praying about all those things that are God's will. I think we are failing in our prayer life. So many of our prayers, I call them gimme prayers. God, gimme this, and gimme this. And give me this, and give me this, and give me this, and give me this. And how often don't we forget to say, and God, give my neighbor this. And give my president and my congress this. And God, give my neighbor who's infringing on the boundaries, give him blessings as well. God says, I want all people to be saved. Now let's begin to pray for all people. So that's, that's the first part of this lesson. This is good. This is pleasing to God, praying for everyone. He wants all people to be saved. Verse 5 is a critical verse. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. What is it that separates us from God? What is it that prevents us from knowing God's will? It's our own sinfulness. But there is a mediator. There is one between us and our Heavenly Father. And it's the man Christ Jesus. And Paul isn't saying he wasn't divine here. He's just saying we have a mediator, someone between us and God. And he was a true man, the Son of God. It's Jesus. He died to break down the barrier. He paid the price, the ransom, so that that barrier between us and God is no longer in existence. Now we can go to our Father and ask Him for anything, knowing that our Father loves us, because we are His redeemed children. And Jesus said in John 14, whatever you ask the Father in my name, He'll do it. What a Powerful promise. Powerful, powerful promise. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll do it. You believe that? If, if you truly believe that, would you spend two hours a day in prayer? Here's a, a wonderful opportunity. This isn't a burden. This isn't God commanding you to pray. He wants you to pray. But God is simply saying, let's have this conversation, folks. I got all these blessings for you. And whatever you ask, I'll give it to you. Or I'll give you even better. It might not be the thing that you ask for, but I'll give you even better according to my wisdom and my will and my understanding. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the one who makes it all possible. So what about praying to saints? Do we need to pray to saints? Can 
saints be mediators between us and man? Do we, do we need to pray to Mary and ask her to talk to her beloved son and ask him for our blessings? Do we pray to St. Paul or any of the others, asking them on our behalf? <laughs> it says pretty clearly there, doesn't it? There is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. We don't pray to saints. We don't pray to anyone else but to the true God in the name of Jesus. Verse 8 says, I desire then, and it's not just Paul desiring this, but it's again as the apostle appointed by God, I'm telling you this is God's will, I desire then in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Every place, I think he's talking about the public worship service here. And he's saying the men, not generic, but men, the males, the leaders of the church, should pray with holy hands. What do we do with our hands when we pray? I was taught, and I taught my kids, when you pray, you fold your hands and interlace your fingers, and that's the proper way to pray. It keeps your hands from being busy doing all kinds of other things and distracting you. When I got to the seminary, I was taught to pray hands like this and to make sure that your right thumb was over your left thumb, and as you walk around the chancel, this is the appropriate way to pray. And then when you lead the worship service and you stand before the congregation, this is the proper way to pray. And oftentimes you'll see in services pastors standing this way with open hands, um, receiving from God, offering up to God and receiving from God. Is this really about where you put your hands? Who is worthy to go into the presence of God? Psalm 24. Who can stand in the presence of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He's not just talking about dirt under the fingernails, but about the person who comes in humility, the person who knows he's a sinner, the person who has been forgiven in the love of God, holding his hands to God in whatever position, offering them to the Heavenly Father. So Paul, again, urges that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger, without quarreling. Can you really go to God in prayer when you're ticked at the guy who won't let you into the traffic? Can you really go to God and expect him to give you anything when you're feuding with your neighbor? Can you really go to God in, in prayer and ask him to bless you when you're condemning that other political party or denouncing your president or carrying on the way we do in public all the time? What is the appropriate attitude of prayer? What's going on in our hearts? It's time to quit. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, teach us to pray the way you taught your disciples the way John taught his disciples. So often we confess to you our prayer life is faltered. And so we pray today that, that you would open our, our mouths and open our hearts and our minds and, 
and continue the conversation with you, that we might listen to your word, that we might understand your will, that we might pray for ourselves, for all people, especially for the poor and the needy who surround us, to place it all into your hands, praying your good and gracious will be done. We thank you for this time in your word today, and we pray that you would be with us in the week that lies before us, that we might take that word and apply it in our lives, that we might be faithful stewards of all that you've entrusted to us. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.